0: Good evening, and welcome to the program of Catholic Studies. My name is T.J. Nielsen, and I am the Director of Christian Formation here at St. Mary's Catholic Church. Tonight, we'll be discussing the history of Islam as part of a two-week series on Islam. We'll be providing the historical context and framework for next week's class when we will delve more deeply into the Islamic doctrines and practices. This will be a bit of a whirlwind tour covering 2,000 years in one hour, so let's get started. Well, we're going to start with the sort of the background that sets up what the world over in the East, and particularly in the Middle East, looked like um, at the time when Islam is going to arise. And so to give the most important feature of the background, that back in the ancient world, and starting re- around 68 BC, the time of Julius Caesar, all the way until the 6th century, and up through the 500s, the premier militaristic rivalry in the world was that between the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire, who the Persian Empire, who they... Didn't usually refer to them as the Persians, but they were essentially the Persian Empire. That for the first 225 years of this, actually until around 224 AD, they were referred to as the Parthian Empire because the Parthian family that ruled them. And then after that, for the next several hundred years, they're going to be referred to as the Sassanid Empire because that is the new family that takes over. Um, you're not going to be quizzed on the names or anything, but just know that the Romans versus the Persians was the premier rivalry. And it was a rivalry that ebbed and flowed back and forth. Um, the Romans, they were a polytheistic empire, but they were interestingly, they were pretty tolerant of other religions. The Persians, the Parthians, were a monotheistic empire. They practiced the religion of Zoroastrianism, um, which oh, Zoroastrianism is a topic for another day, but they practiced Zoroastrianism, and they also, for the most part, were pretty tolerant of other religions. Um, but the one thing that they were not tolerant of is each other. They absolutely despised each other, and so they fought back and forth. And the Romans... And like I said, it ebbed and flowed. The Romans, they actually sacked the Persian capital of Tessaphon three different times. And likewise, it wasn't just one-sided. The Persians even captured the Roman Emperor Valerian. They made him into a footstool, and then later stuffed him and made him into a court decoration in their capital. Um, So it it was going back and forth, yeah. Um, Now, because of these wars, there's a couple of important things that happened was one, that the trade routes from the Roman Empire to China in the east, they couldn't really go through Persia, so they actually started going through what we call nowadays Saudi Arabia, the peninsula of Arabia, and that's where you start to actually get a little local prosperity in Arabia. And then another main thing that happens of it is that eventually the Romans actually moved their capital to the east, to Constantinople. See, I need a laser pointer, but I don't have one. Constantinople over here so that they can be closer to that Persian threat. Now, when I say it's constant warfare, there was just one brief time that they had sort of a hundred year truce. That from around 400 to 500 AD, there was this hundred year truce between the Romans and the Persians. And there were some important developments that happened during that hundred years. First of all, the important development, is that in the Roman Empire, they abandoned their polytheism and they became a monotheistic Christian Empire. But then also in that hundred years, the Germanic tribes, as you like learn in school, they moved into the Western Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire broke apart into independent kingdoms. However, the eastern half of the Roman Empire did not break apart. It continued with the Roman capital at Constantinople. And so the Eastern Roman Empire, which is known to us as the Byzantine Empire, continued. And they're going to continue all the way up into the middle of the 1400s. But but that same rivalry was still there, Roman Empire versus the Persians, now ruled by the Sassanids. Now, when you get to the 6th century into the 500s, the Byzantines, they... Rebuilt the strength a little bit of the Roman Empire, in particular under the Emperor Justinian, who did a lot of the reconquering of the West. And they reclaimed some of that glory of Rome. And that hundred years of peace ended. Um, and so what ended up happening was they ended up having an all-out world war between the Byzantines and the Persians in the 6th century. Now, when I say all-out world war, that back at this time, if you want to look at the most populated places in the entire world, it was actually Egypt and modern-day Turkey were the two most populated places in the world. Like, this was the center of culture. This was the center of the Christian world. That Europe just did not have, was, was basically the rural um, farmland. There was not the great c- cities. Like, all of the great cities were in the east. And so you had this huge world war that absolutely decimated both empires. The Sassanids went all the way and laid siege to Constantinople. And then in a brilliant move, the Byzantine emperor actually sailed his entire army over the Black Sea and came down and destroyed the Persian capital. And so both empires were in ruins by the time the war was over. And to make matters worse... The Black Plague, which people usually disassociate with the Middle Ages, struck as well and killed a third of the entire population. Now, so that's going to be important that neither of these empires are going to be fit to hold off invaders at this time. And then the other big thing was when I said that the Byzantines were monotheistic, And so where the Sassanids, that before they had both been rather tolerant of other religions, by this time they've abandoned that toleration of other religions. And the reason for that is, is they were both multinational empires. And it was their religion that bound them together. So it was the Christian religion that bound the Byzantine Empire together. And so, when you, for instance, you think of the history of the early church, there was heresies that abounded left and right. Um, and so as the church was defining doctrine and they were dealing with all these heresies one of the things I'm going to lose track of my notes and then I won't be able to find it if I let myself do that one of the things that they did was when there was a heresy that was condemned they would end up exiling those heretics so for instance, two of the big heresies, one was called Gnosticism, which denied that the physical world um, was good. And so they, one of the things they denied was they said that Jesus, he couldn't have really died on the cross because that would have been an evil thing. And then there's a other heresy, um, the Monophysites, who argued that Christ had only one nature, that he wasn't both human and divine. So these are two big heresies. And what would they do with the heretics? When they were condemned, they would exile them, and where would they exile them to? Arabia. So that Arabia was just sort of this melting pot of heresies um, that was, that, if you will, that hanging out in the desert. Now, um, yeah, one last thing uh, that, about it, though, was there's also these two tribes that were important called the Gassanids and the Lachmids. Now, the Gassanids were a client state of the Byzantines that were always fighting on their side, and the Lachmids were likewise a client state of the Sassanids and fighting on their side. Now, both of them, however, were heretics. They were both Monophysites, and, and I say Monophysite Christians, so the Byzantines didn't like the Gassanids because they were heretics, and the Sassanids didn't like them because they were heretics, but they're, they're heretic Christians, and they're just, that's too close to Christianity, so they didn't like them either. So in an act of suicidal politics, um, what, they are each going to destroy their own client state because they're heretics. So the Byzantines went in and destroyed the, the Ghassanids and the Persians, the Lakhmids. Now this is important because each of them served as a buffer from the Arabs that the Roman Empire had never been able to conquer. Um, and the, the, both of these states of the ghassanids and the lakhmids they were these fast-moving desert armies as opposed to the slow, um, infantry, heavy infantry of the Persians and the Byzantines. And so, like I said, they were able to act as a buffer, and when they were, are destroyed in this suicidal politics, they're going to leave themselves open to these fast-moving, mobile um, armies of the Arab peoples. Now, moving on... That, so anyway, so that's the, what the world looked like at the beginning of the 7th century and when the Arab armies, which we'll talk about in a minute, are going to start invading. Now, moving on to the beginning of Islam and in particular to Muhammad. Now this is something that brought up over here at the beginning. That There's a very interesting topic that has only started to be discussed lately in serious scholarship, and that is the idea of the historical Muhammad. That it's interesting that for centuries, people have been investigating the historical Jesus. They've been writing books about the historical Jesus. But the idea of the historical Muhammad has never actually really been investigated until around the last 20 years. Um, Now, the interesting thing is that while there are large amounts of historical proof for the person of Jesus, there is actually absolutely zero historical evidence for the person of Muhammad. Um, And the interesting thing is that the Arabs, which we'll get to, are going to conquer the entire Middle East over a 60-year period. And one would expect, naturally, as they're conquering the Byzantine and the Persian empires, that there would be some record or some reference somewhere of the person of Muhammad, whether the... um, Muslims, the Quran, or even Islam, like you would expect. So, you'd expect hey, look, a record of like the Byzantines themselves saying, hey, the Muslims are attacking, the followers of Muhammad are attacking, something about the Quran, but there is no reference of any of those over a 60 year period. Um, now, in fact, the, whenever the Persians or the Byzantines or any of them ever refer to them, they always just call them the Saracens or the Ishmaelites. And they didn't even call themselves the Muslims, which is an interesting thing during that period. Now, um, and so you have to start to ask, well, why over the 60-year period would there be no reference to Muhammad, the followers of Muhammad? And I would say that maybe it's because Muhammad wasn't invented yet. And the reason, and let me, we'll get into this, that um, in fact, the word Muhammad never actually appears in any record until around 60 years after his supposed death. During the reign of the... Uh, we'll get into a family called the Umayyads, but the fifth Umayyad caliph, like leader of Islam, a guy named Muhammad al-Malik. And the first one is used. The word Muhammad just literally it's a, was an honorary title. It means the praised one. So actually, the very first recorded use of Muhammad, it's actually an Arab coin. And on one half it, side, it says Muhammad. And then on the other side, it has a picture of al-Malik. And then the other place that it was for, used in, in six years later, is during also the reign of Al-Malik. He built the famous Dome of the Rock, that mosque that's on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the big blue one you can see. And on the top, there is these inscriptions from the newly created Quran, which was put together under the reign of Al-Malik. And it, and it uses the word Muhammad actually referring to Jesus. Um, now, which is kind of strange one would think. And anyway, so, um, and like I said, supposedly according to Islamic tradition, they say that the third caliph, Uthman, is the one who put together the Quran. but oh, scholars all agree that it was actually al-Malik that did it, and he even claimed in writing, he said, said that he put together the Koran. Um, now, one of the things that's most interesting is that as far as biographical material, um, about Muhammad, it doesn't even appear for another 90 years after Al-Malik. So the, and so, the, Muhammad, like I said, was used as an honorary title, but the idea of him actually being an individual doesn't appear until 150 years after his supposed death, when the first biographies were written about Muhammad. Um, now, the interesting thing is that these biographies, which we'll get into next week, that Muslims themselves argue relentlessly over which are the true ones, which ones aren't, and that there are written by dozens of different sources, at least but starting 150 years later, and they wrote so much about the supposed life of this guy Muhammad that they actually, you could account for every single day of his entire life if he really did exist. Now, the interesting thing about that, though, if them writing for every single day of his entire life, is that at the time of Muhammad, the Arabs, actually, till this day, they still use a lunar calendar instead of a solar calendar like us, and their calendar is 11 days shorter. So this is why, like, one year you'll, at Ramadan, the month of Ramadan, will be, like, the time of Christmas, and the post office will have their stamps of, like, Happy Hanukkah, Ramadan, and Christmas, and then the next year it doesn't work, and they have to put the stamps away in hopes of it the cycle coming around again. That So... But back at the time of Muhammad, they had in the calendar a leap month to make up for this. Now, what happened, though, is right after the supposed time of Muhammad, they abolished the leap month. So by the time you get to his biographies being written 150 years after his supposed life, they didn't have the leap month, and they hadn't had it for a while. So when they wrote his biographies, they forgot that the leap month had been present, So, you have this month of every year where they just have no record of Muhammad doing anything, kind of like he hibernated. Um, so, So, what does this all mean? That the interest. So, what scholars have started to realize is that the idea that Islam was actually probably made up once they had started to make an empire, when they saw that. The empire of the Byzantines, they used Christianity to hold their empire together. The Persians used Rastrian to hold their empire together. That most of the Muslims, the Arabs that had come out of Arabia, they were this mix of this monophysite Gnostic heresies. And so, the idea is that under the Caliph al-Malik, they decided to make this new religion of Islam. And that was, and you can see, this is why Islam contains so many loose plagiarisms of Christianity, as well as other elements from the different heresies. So they built empire first, and then the religion to uphold it. And then later on, around 150 years later, they, the figure of Muhammad was invented, modeled actually after Al-Malik, whose life is suspiciously almost exactly like that of Muhammad. That If you look at his biography and Muhammad's, they go almost identical. And then they cast him into the past to try to give some historical credence, but it's not like there was the internet or anything back then. Um, and, but if you think about it, if you were to invent a religion for political purposes, it would look an awful lot like Islam, um, including with jihad, the idea of brutal conquest and submission, avoiding tricky theological questions that cause division, um, and, and has especially done so in the Byzantine Empire, this is, if, uh, this is why we'll get into next week how Islam doesn't have any real theology, just rules to follow. Um, but then the idea also of just combining this with a simple legal system, a simple tax system, and a government or- simple government organization of martial law, and you, you sort of design that together and you have a cocktail for success. Now, however, if Muhammad might... this We'll get to this in a second, sorry. If Muhammad might never have actually existed, because right now we're going to turn and go through the life of Muhammad. Um, why are we going to bother doing that? And so, it, like I said, if Muhammad never existed, might not have existed, and Islam might have just been made up, completely different than the narrative that I'm sure you all learned in your young days when you were at Madrasa, um, that why are we going to turn and go through the life of Muhammad? And the reason is that Muslims believe he existed, and the Quran states that Muhammad is the supreme example of conduct to be imitated. So if you want to know the supreme example that Muslims are supposed to imitate, it would be the life of Muhammad, who they believe existed. So that's why we're going to go through and actually look at the, the record of his life um, or how it's recorded. Now, a little background of his life, that he was from the city of Mecca. You can see down there in the Arabian Peninsula which was ruled by a tribe called the Quraysh tribe. His mother was actually from Medina. Once again, just like Al-Malik, but we won't go into pointing out how all these things are true of Al-Malik. And the Quraysh had only recently taken over Mecca. They were sort of newcomers. And they were in the middle of consolidating their power When he was born and recorded, the supposed date is 570 A.D. And one of the big things that they had was that Mecca was on the trade route. So there was lots of cross-pollinization (sighs) of heresy, That heretical melting pot was right in Mecca. And the big thing that they had there also was the the Kaaba. There's the big black... Um, cube, they have this black meteorite inside, but they also used to keep all of their little pagan idols inside for their various gods and jinns. And the chief of, chief masculine god of theirs, they called Allah. And Muhammad, when he was a young man, he was joined the brotherhood of Allah, and he would go as part of that brotherhood and preach Allah as the chief god. But later on, which we'll get to in a second, he's going to, when he has his supposed mystical experiences, he's going to begin to redefine Allah in a way that's more modeled after the Jewish or Christian God. Now, um, Muhammad's life is divided into sort of three, traditionally into three different parts. That of traitor, seer, and raider. Now, when he was living in Mecca, when Muhammad, when he was 25 years old, he married an older woman who was 40, named Khadijah, who was successful and owned a large caravan um, company. And he managed her caravans for her. And there he went up and down, he, all the way up into Syria and Antioch. And he learned a lot about different religions. And he also learned all the trade routes, which is going to become particularly important later on when he's robbing them. Now... Um, then what happened in around 612 or 614, supposedly he began receiving visions from the archangel Gabriel, whereby God was giving him a new revelation. Now, this is important that Christianity is the only religion in the entire world that involves a public revelation that's not just given to like a secret message given to one person. Um, which is true of every other religion in the entire world. So he claims that, God, that the angel Gabriel has given him this new revelation, and he started going around and trying to preach it in Mecca and amongst his, the Quraysh tribe, and the Quraysh would not stand for this. They, so They got angry with him, and so in 622, he is forced to flee to his family that lives in Medina, in an important event called the the Hijra, which is considered by Muslims the beginning of Islam, and this is why actually the Islamic calendar starts in 622. Um, That's why if you ever go visit like Saudi Arabia or something, their years are off, because their year zero is 622, and when he flies to Medina. And when he gets to Medina, he's going to sort of change his role into that of, and more of an imperial leader following the imperial structure of the Byzantines and the Persians, and he's going to start this merging of the political and the religious, which is going to be a key element of the history of Islam, that the, this marriage of politics and religion sort of being one and the same. Like Islam will be a territory and a religion at the same time. And... He, at this time, supposedly started re- continuing receiving and messages from Gabriel, as well as other angels, and his angelic voices started telling him to impose Islam on the rest of the world by means of the sword. And, quote, here you go from the Quran, chapter 9, verse 73, where it says, Prophet, make war on the unbelievers and the hypocrites, and deal rigorously with them. Hell shall be their home and evil fate. Now, this effort will be called jihad, which before it only meant an inner struggle for each believer to submit to God's will, but at this time became to mean a holy war against the unbelievers. That's why it's something you'll see in the news. You um, that see different Muslim apologists will just try to argue, oh, it's just an inner struggle, jihad. But yes, in the beginning that's what it was, but then it quickly changed in the Quran. And something you'll get into next week is that whenever the Quran contradicts itself, it's whatever comes second. That wins. Now, <laughs> now, the way that he supported his armies was by raiding those caravans that he had learned so well. And in particular, that of the Quraysh tribe. And this is the beginning of an understanding that all things are permissible if they're for the good of Islam. Now, then the biggest story of this is when there was a month, a holy month in the Arab calendar where they weren't supposed to... Um, kill or to fight, and what had happened is he had sent out his soldiers to go and wait and attack the Quraysh caravans, and anyway, they took a while to find them, and so by the time it, they, got, they found it, that month had begun, and they weren't supposed to kill. So they decided, well, we're going to do it anyway. So they went, and they did it anyway. They killed all of the Quraysh and they stole all the stuff, and they came back. And when they got to Muhammad, Muhammad was upset and said, hey, you're not supposed to kill during this month. But then he supposedly received new revelation at that moment that said it is worse to persecute Islam than to kill. So meaning that, if, that their, the curacious sin of standing in the way of Islam is a far greater sin of anything that they could be doing. So... Killing during that month was permis- permissible. And this is going to be the start of the Islamic idea that we'll get into next week, that things like lying, um, etc., are bad, unless it's for the good of Islam. Now, um, so anyway, 630, there was the brutal conquest of Mecca. And I should mention that one thing when they would attack these caravans is they would always steal all the stuff of whoever they would attack. And Muhammad would keep for himself one-fifth and, the, like I said, 630, they have the brutal conquest of Mecca, where they, he, Muhammad enacted revenge upon the Meccans and slaughtered um, all the leaders that opposed him, including the prisoners. And then he spent the next two years conquering the surrounding towns. And then 632, he died. Now, it's important because the life of Muhammad has placed certain attitudes and assumptions in the... In the Islamic mind historically, which we'll see throughout its history. And one of these is that Allah will grant victory to his people against foes that are superior in numbers and firepower so, so long as they remain faithful to his commands. Number two, that victories entitle the Muslims to appropriate the possessions of the vanquished as booty. Number three, that the bloody vengeance against one's enemies belongs not solely to Allah or not solely to the Lord, but also to those who submit to him on earth. Prisoners taken in battle against Muslims may be put to death at the discretion of Muslim leaders. Those who reject Islam are the, quote from the Quran, chapter 98, verse 6, the vilest of creatures and thus deserve no mercy. Anyone who insists or even opposes Muhammad or his people deserves a humiliating death by beheading, if possible. This is in accordance with Allah's command from the Quran to, quote, smite the necks of the unbelievers, from chapter 47, verse 4. Now, um... Yeah, well, that was supposed to be with this slide, so we can skip this slide. Um... Now we can pass the heads. All right. Now, hopefully I'm not going to too slow, but I think I'm all right. Now, anyway, after the death of Muhammad, the, there's going to be his successors that are going to lead the Arab armies. Um, and the first called caliphs, or in Arabic, Khalifa, And the first four called the rightly guided caliphs. And we're going to go through, they're the only four that we're going to talk about, specifically each one, very briefly. But in order, it's going to be Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali. And we'll just talk about each one very briefly. And their names are on your sheet of paper, so I don't have to keep this up. Um, Now, they're going to be important because they're going to conquer this entire, the yellow, by the time those first four caliphs are done in a 30-year span. that's how much they're going to have conquered. Now the what happened was while the sorry need a drink of water. Was while Ali, who was actually Muhammad's closest relative, his cousin and his nephew, or sorry, his cousin and his son in law um, was burying Muhammad the other leaders, they decided to elect a frank, close friend of Muhammad to be his, the successor, but not a direct relative or not direct descendant, named Abu Bakir, who was a little bit of an older guy. And Abu Bakir was actually Muhammad's father-in-law. Muhammad married Abu Bakir's daughter, Aisha, when she was six years old. But don't worry. She stayed at home till she was nine before the marriage was consummated with Muhammad, who was then 53. Now, Abu Bakr only ruled for a few years and basically successfully conquered the rest of the Arabian Peninsula before he died. And then he was succeeded by Umar, whose full name was Umar ibn al-Khattab, but I don't think you care. And Umar famously took over Egypt. He's actually going to do the most conquering of any of them. He quickly took over Egypt, first of all, and there is an Islamic myth. Um, I have a friend who is a Coptic from Egypt, and one of the things that they're always taught in school is that the Egyptians welcomed the Muslims as liberators, Um, but that is not true, that they were... um, They brutally tortured the Coptic Christians into submission. And famously, the one orthodox city of Alexandria, which is around up here, that held out successfully for around a year. Once they took Alexandria, they slaughtered the entire population as revenge or punishment for not surrendering. And then Umar sent out armies against the Byzantine Empire and against the Persians. He quickly conquered Damascus where St. Paul was baptized. They conquered Antioch where Christians were first called Christians. Then they actually came back. They had bypassed Jerusalem. They came back down. And before they conquered Jerusalem, the Byzantine emperor actually came and removed the true cross from Jerusalem and brought it back to Constantinople. But then they conquered Jerusalem as well. And then they turned on the Persians and conquered their capital and killed the Sassanid emperor. But in a key theme that is going to continue, Umar was stabbed to death with a poisoned dagger on the way to morning prayer. And he was, who he was stabbed by was a follower of the next caliph, Uthman. Now Uthman, the next caliph, who he's most, what he's most famous for is his corrupt family. They had a very famous family called the Umayyads that he was really liked nepotism, and he started putting his family members as emirs or governors over all the major cities of the empire, or of his empire. And he did not continue the active conquest because of the fact they just weren't quite strong enough to keep conquering. The Byzantine Empire was still able to hold them off a little bit. And what happens when you have... Large, untrained armies, or undisciplined armies that have been conquering, and you don't continue conquering, they end up rioting and fighting amongst themselves. So poor Umar I'm not Umar. Poor Uthman was actually assassinated by some disgruntled Egyptian soldiers um, and murdered just like his predecessor. Now, the next, the fourth of the rightly guided caliphs, Ali who thought he should have been the first caliph, being the, six, the closest male relative of Muhammad and married to Muhammad's daughter. Um, was Like I said, was Ali. And what's going to distinguish his caliphate isn't so much conquest as civil war with all of Uthman's Umayyad relatives. Because you remember he said that he put them all in key places. And so what happened was there was one of them who was in charge of, in Damascus, a guy named Muawiyah, that, he said that they ended up this huge civil war, Umayyads versus Ali and his family. And we won't get into all the specifics, but what they ended up having to do was they end up with a negotiated peace. And this tr- truce, that is an important thing, that under Islamic law, truces can only be temporary while Islamic forces regain their strength so they had this. They're in the middle of this truce, and there was this party called the Karajites, who were the first extreme fun, Islamic fundamentalists. And when we use the term fundamentalist, it means that they specifically care only about, for as the following very strictly what's said in the Quran, as well as the, following the example of the life of Muhammad to the letter. And they thought that only perfect Muslims could go to heaven and that all the bad Muslims should be killed. Oh. And one of the things that they thought was that, um, that God would determine who the rightful caliph was um, on the battlefield. So they despised Ali for negotiating with these Umayyads and they murdered him. <laughs> now, um, and in many ways they're actually sort of the exact precursors of Al-Qaeda. But we can talk about that later. Um, so anyway... The fighting between Ali's family and the Umayyads continued, the Umayyads won, and poor Ali's family and his followers, they fled over to Persia, where they established a little bit of a foothold, and there they continued to be a small resistance movement, and they called themselves the Shia Ali, or the Party of Ali, or the Shiites. And this is the beginning of the division of Shiites versus Sunnis because the followers of the Umayyads called themselves the legitimate ones or the Sunnis. And so we'll talk more about them next week because they did develop some theological differences later on, but at first that was the big difference. What year was that? That was, hold on, 661. Now, um, the next period in Islamic history, I'm going to do more by theme, in that this empire is going to last first under the Umayyads is going, whoops, hold on, I have to go backwards now. Well, that didn't work. There we go. right. now, this empire is going to last, um, actually, more or less until 1924. But, um, but, but specifically, is going to, first of all, you're going to have the Umayyad family who's going to be in charge for around 100 years. And they're going to spread Islam to its farthest extent. And then you're going to have a new family that's going to be in charge called the Abbasids. And they will technically be in charge all the way until around 1250, though they're only really going to be strongly um, in charge for around 100 years. Then the one key theme that we'll get to is that Islam has this tendency of infighting and factionalism. So after around 100 years, even though the Abbasids are to- technically in charge, is really going to be all these little factions, and there's not going to be much unity amongst them. Um, now, um, to these themes, we're going to go like it's... Said a few key themes that we see during these empires. Um, And if anyone actually does get confused, you can ask me to redo say something. Um, Anyway, so the first of these key themes is that of jihad. Um, That according to the Quran, it's the imperative of all Muslims to work towards worldwide Islamic hegemony through jihad. Now, it's interestingly the Quran does call for peace, but only a peace that will come when everyone in the world is Muslim, or at least subject to the Islamic state. And to establish that peace, Muslims must wage war. Um, now, the Quran gives Muslims three says that there's three choices that they are to give non-Muslims. They can accept Islam they can pay what's called the jizya, or it's a, it's a poll tax, which, whereby they become second-class citizens called Dimi, and it's this whole institu- institutionalized structure where it's a very, I mean, we'll get more into that next week, this very humiliating thing where they not only have to pay the tax, but they're actually supposed to be slapped while they pay it so that they feel themselves submitted. Um, or the third choice, so you become Dimi, become Muslim, or face war. Those are the three choices that um, unbelievers are given. Now, one really sees this, I mean, this is a theme you'll see throughout the entire history of Islam, but you'll really see this amongst the um, Umayyads in their empire in the 8th century when they conquered all all the way across North Africa. They went up into Spain. They conquered almost all of Spain. They famously crossed over the Pyrenees and invaded France. And actually got all the way up to northern France, where they were stopped in 732 at the Battle of Tours by Charles the Hammer. And but even though they were stopped, they still over the next century they actually invaded France three different times. But you usually don't learn about that. Um, and this is going to continue all the way up until actually the last. We'll get to it. The last armed invasion of Europe in the late 19th or late 17th century. Now. So the spreading of Islam through the sword, is through, called jihad, is one key theme. Second theme is that of the appropriation from other cultures. Now, the Umayyads and the Abbasid empires that they're often in, you read in textbooks, they always talk about like the golden age of Islam and the flourishing of the culture within their empires. And you learn about how they preserved all of these ancient learning from the Greeks. But the amazing thing is if you think about it, how can a desert people that had no written language within 50 years have an intellectual and cultural renaissance? And the simple answer, is that the flourishing was actually the result of the Christian cultures that were already there, that they took over. Now, so for instance, um, the math and science, actually they took from a combination from the Christians and also from the Indians over in India when they conquered there. Like um, even the Arabic numerals we learn about, or they just took from... The, from India, but the architecture they just, they took from the Byzantines, um, so the Dome of the Rock was actually built by Byzantine engineers, um, the famous like Arabic domes that those were the, the onion domes of Byzantium, um, even a lot, like for instance, this is the Great Mosque in Damascus, which was one of, the Church of St. Mark that was built by St. Mark and actually has the head of John the Baptist inside, um, and was, they just took it and made it into a mosque, and even the symbol we always think of—the crescent moon and the star—was actually one of the symbols of the Byzantine Empire. Um, and, for instance, like, such as even um, when, because the Umayyads, what they, the things they did was they moved their capital to Damascus, which was the center of Christian learning, and that one of the myths that people sometimes say is they. Claim that the Muslims had the first university in the world down in Egypt. But actually, the first university at this time was a was a Melkite Christian university in Syria. And that it was actually the Christians who preserved Aristotle and translated him and the other Greek writings and translated him into Arabic. The first Islamic medical treatise was written by a Christian priest and actually translated to Arabic by a Jewish doctor. Um, and when the Abbasids later on, they moved the capital to Baghdad, that those Christians, they didn't like I said, they didn't disappear. Majority of the population of this empire was Christian. That um, they continued that influence and they just then started adopting even more from India and the Persian Empire as well. But they were not, um, they're not coming up with it themselves. Now, tying in with this theme though, is the third theme, And that is as, and this is a theme of a fundamentalist Islam asserting itself against the sort of heretical modern Islam that had been influenced by these Christian sources. Now, see, because with all of this influence from Christian philosophy that was taking place in the Islamic empire, that these fundamentalists... um, These fundamentalists started seeing it as a distraction from the purity of Islam. And so they wanted to rid Islam of all these outside influences. And like I said, and restore doctrinal purity based solely on the Quran and these stories about the life of Muhammad called Hadiths, which we'll talk more about next week. Um, And so these legalist fundamentalists, what happened during the Abbasid Empire around or 800 or so was they started codifying the life of Muhammad and the sayings of the Quran and making it into a legal code, which they called Sharia. And then they started implementing it within the empire as a reaction against these Christian ph- philosophical influences. And so, basically, what they did they said all this culture is distracting people from being good Muslims. And so they implemented Sharia and they purposely destroyed it themselves. Um, There's a reason why they wiped out their own culture because it was a distraction from Islam. Now, the last theme, and something that's important too, that we'll talk about more later, and we've already talked about a little bit, is that Islam is really successful when it's united under a strong caliphate, under one strong leader. Historically, and when it succumbs to its natural infighting and factionalism is when the, it starts to slow down and is not very successful. Now, the amazing thing is that it's not, we're not the only ones that are aware of this. Modern Muslims know this. And most people don't realize that the caliphate didn't break up until 1924. And so, like I said, modern, modern Muslims are all across the spectrum. That one of their main goals is they want to re- reestablish the caliphate. And this is true of everyone from the violent groups like the Taliban, Al Qaeda, the Muslim Brotherhood, um, Hamas. They all, that's their goal. But also, even non violent Muslims, the same goal, such as um, the President of Turkey, Tayyip Recep Erdogan. He has very vocally called for the reestablishment of the caliphate. Or another intellectual Muslim leader who's often promoted as a very moderate philosophical fellow named Fathullah Gulam. He has very vocally called for the restoration of the caliphate. And interestingly, they just have different methods of going about it. Like this Ghulam fellow, he started a basically a charter a school movement of building Islamic schools around the world to try to educate people to be more Islamic-friendly, and including in America a charter school movement, which they just built one on Pelham Road this year across from the library called the Green Charter School. Um, and anyway, and so you'll see that even when the Abbasids... Um, When they were in charge though, this strong caliphate broke down and Islam was not able to go on the advance anymore and they started breaking up into this period of factionalism and it was during this time, however, that Islam was going to get sort of a shot in the arm from fundamentalists that are going to invade and sort of boost up Islam all the way from Mongolia And this is, you think of, like, Genghis Khan and the Mongols, that there's two Mongol groups that are going to come in and give Islam a shot in the arm. One is the Mongols, who invade the eastern half and built the Mughal Empire in India, who we're not going to talk about. But then there's another group called the Turks, and they came in at this time to around 1000 AD, and they moved in and are going to give, like I said, a little more vigor to Islam, so that they're able to continue trying to attack, and it's at this time. Sorry, I'm. I think I'm going to go a little slow, but. If, if, and it's at this time that the Crusades are going to come in. Now. Um, so what had happened when these Turks came in? They were very fundamentalists. Um, they were, um, and they started attacking the Byzantine Empire, and they actually pushed all the way within 15 miles of Constantinople. And at the same time, they took over the holy sites in Jerusalem, and they stopped allowing the Christians to visit them in relative peace, which the Abbasids had actually let Christians visit them in moderate peace. And so it was at this time that the Byzantine emperor, in this was around 1000, Actually, it was around 1,080. He he asked for the the Pope, if he could please try to rally the forces of Europe to send some help, and he did exactly that. And so instead of getting a few thousand troops, as he expected, he got around a million. And so what happened was these armies, Christian armies came. They did not always behave well, but they came. And it was what's called the First Crusade. They came down. They reconquered Antioch. They did not reconquer Damascus, which was a big mistake. Um, And then they also even reconquered Jerusalem. Now, there's a series of other crusades back and forth, and we're not going to get into the history of all of them. Um, But... The end result of the Crusades is that the Muslims, once again, at first they, they didn't think it was a huge deal because they, weren't, they had all these factions going on and they just thought the Christians were just this other faction. But when they were united under this brilliant but brutal guy named, um, an Egyptian named Saladin, that briefly again, this idea of a united caliphate, they're able to unite together and they're going to drive the Christians out of the Middle East. Um, we could get into a whole night about the myths of Saladin and how for some reason in the West we like to gloss over his history and make him into a hero rather than the brutal massacre he was. But that being said, um, they drive the Christians out of the Middle East. Now, while the Christians are not able to stay there. They, it is, the Crusades are important in that they preserved the Byzantine Empire for another 450 years. That if the Crusaders hadn't come, Constantinople would have fallen. And if Constantinople would have fallen, the entirety of Europe would have been open for invasion before the Europeans were strong enough to stop it. Now, so, that was brings us through the Middle Ages, that after Saladin, the fighting started over again, and it's not going to be until 1350 that the Muslim world gets united again under non—sorry, uh, no, not another strong caliphate. And this is another group of Turks called the Ottoman Turks, with their new caliph who they call the Sultan. And this is going to be the longest and greatest of all Islamic empires. And like the other empires, you have sort of this dual um, thing going on of the sultan, being sort of the two stools that run the empire of the sultan and the Sharia law, the law based on the rules of Islam. And um, in an interesting note, side note for you, that it was under the Ottomans that they added to Sharia. They added an office called the Mufti, and what the Mufti would do was he was sort of the chief legal advisor of the Sharia courts, and he would write advisory opinions about the laws that were called fatwas. And, so, um, and, over, and they were collected into these law books. And over time, like nowadays, fatwas are still around, but nowadays we think of like the Ayatollah Khomeini when he issued his fatwa against Salman Rushdie, who we think of basically as a religious bounty upon people's heads. Um which I expect mine by next week. Um, that, that, but, but that's just one aspect of what a fatwa actually is. Now, however, like the, like the Umayyads, like the Abbasids, like Muhammad himself, the Ottomans were majorly a jihad empire. So one of the things that they're most famous for was in one of the most important dates in all of history. In 1453, they finally conquered Constantinople... The capital of Rome, and this is when the Roman Empire finally fell. And this is a huge impact on the history of the world because we'll see three things about it. One was the very first book ever published in Europe by a new invention, guy named Johannes Gutenberg that invented the printing press, was he was so concerned about the Ottomans invading, he wrote, he put together a little book called The Turkish Calendar. It was a pamphlet to warn people about their invasion. And that was the first thing printed on the printing press. The Renaissance, that when they took over Constantinople, a lot of the intellectuals and the scholars fled to Italy and brought with them a renewed interest in classical culture, starting with the Renaissance. And then also, when they took over Constantinople, they Before, the primary trade route to the East and the Orient was through Constantinople and the Black Sea, but that was cut off, so they had to find a new trade route, and so that's why Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Now, all because they took Constantinople. Now, they continued to conquer... Oh, wait, I had a slide for the conquering Constantinople, but now it's a little late. Oh, well. There's the fall of Constantinople... And moving on, back to this one. All right. So they next moved in. They conquered Greece. They conquered all of the Balkans. And there's lots of great stories. If you ever want to learn a great story, read about. Um, now I'm having a brain cramp. I'll remember his name in a minute. Um, oh, well, I'll come back to it. In, 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 oh, well, I'll get back to you in a minute if I remember his name. But anyway, they conquered um, the entire Middle East. And then, oh, sorry, I remember now. St. John, read about St. John Capistrano when he's 81-year-old Franciscan monk leading the charge out of Belgrade against the invading Islamic forces. But anyway, so they invade the Middle East and they push all the way into the heart of Europe and laid siege to Vienna, which they're going to do two different times. And the first time was in 1529, right after the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And what happened was their invasion was that the Emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, who was the Catholic, Charles V, that was trying to suppress the new heresy of Protestantism, um, he had to stop and turn and fight against the Muslims and focus against them, which is what allowed Protestantism to survive. But even though they were outnumbered, they were able to, he was able to drive the forces away from Vienna. But they didn't... And like I said, the continual theme of truce until they regain their strength. So, they retreat, regain their strength, and in 1571, they tried, this time tried, an amphibious assault of Italy, and this is when the most important naval battle in probably in history is when the combined forces of Venice, Spain, and the Knights of Malta went and stopped the enormous invading fleet of the Turks who were p- planning on invading Italy and taking over Europe from the s- south. And they were so they were met on October 7, 1571 at the Gulf of Lepanto, where even though badly outnumbered, they defeated the Turkish forces. And this is why that... The the Pope asked the Christians to pray the rosary on that day for victory, and so that's why October 7th became first the Feast of Our Lady of Victory and now the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary. Um, But once again, they were not done, and they keep coming back. 1683, they invaded, laid siege to Vienna again, and this is an important one because on the morning of September 11th, They looked like they were going to actually break through, and what happened in the mist in the morning was Jan Sobieski, the king of Poland, showed up with his force of what was called his winged hussars, and they rode in and they destroyed the Islamic army, and that's why they chose September 11th um, for bombing the Twin Towers as symbolic revenge, and However, this is the last major invasion of Europe because something really important happened right after that that happens in Europe that does not happen in the Islamic world, and that is the Industrial Revolution. And so, while before the Ottomans had better technology and better cannons and everything than the Europeans, once the Industrial Revolution takes place in Europe, and there's a reason, which we can get into next week, why it takes place actually we'll a little bit now, why it takes place there, not in the Islamic world is you remember that when they were killing their own culture and their own science because they thought it was too distracting from islam that, that's sort of a that it takes sort of the Christian worldview um, of science being and Um, or, say, of the universe being reasonable and God being reasonable that leads towards science. And so there's a reason why this happens in Europe and not the Islamic world. But the result is Europe leaves the Islamic world in the dust materially. So that over the next couple hundred years, the Ottoman Empire becomes more and more irrelevant. There's a reason why it ends up being called the sick man of Europe because their army just... the technology is pathetic compared to the rest of Europe. The materially, they can't keep up. And they fall more and more under the thumb of the European powers who are starting to colonize the rest of the world. And I promise you that we really are almost done. Now, until you get all the way to World War I, when they participate in World War I on the losing side, and the end result is that the entire Ottoman Empire basically gets divided between the English and the French who are going to run the Middle East until all the way after World War II and the Ottoman Empire itself, the Caliphate, was famously abolished in 1924 under the Turkish man Ataturk Um, and so it was only 1924 that the Caliphate uh, broke up and interestingly, actually, the grandson of the last Caliph lives in New York City and so Let' see I skipping over slides again now, but anyway, so when you ha- don't so Islam now is not a territory as well as a religion. it was broken up into these all these different states, and you have sort of this sh- um, shattering of reactions of what to do about this um, and so Islam is still trying to deal with this to this day, and when like I said, like the European powers see. basically divided the Middle East between France and Britain, that they brought with it secular European um, government. And so, what's happened nowadays, um, this secular European influence that most of the countries adopted governments that resembled it. However, while only a couple of governments, like Turkey, they tried to have sort of liberal democracies, most of the countries, when they were looking for a secular model of government to follow, um, the European idea of liberty and democracy didn't really fit with their worldview and their history. And what fit a lot better was more of a secular Marxist fascist, fascist government. Um, because if you think about it, um, when submission rather than freedom is the norm, that Marxist fascism works a lot better, and so this is why all across the Middle East you ended up with this form of government in Egypt, first under Anwar Sadat, then under um, yeah Mubarak, Mubarak. in Syria under Assad, um, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, and. And it's interesting that this was sort of the norm across Europe, I mean, the Middle East in like the 1960s, and this will be important next week. And so, for instance, when Vatican II writes about Islam, that there was, the Islamic world was very secularized in the 1960s. You go to Egypt, you probably would not have seen a single burqa, um, as opposed to, interestingly, in reaction to this Western influence, in the last 40 years, there's been this enormous fundamentalist Islamic revival around the world, so that you, you go to Cairo nowadays and you certainly see a whole lot of burqas and this huge revival has been propelled first and foremost by oil money Um, and oil money especially in the country of Saudi Arabia where there was this ultra fundamentalist sect called the Wahhabis that basically run the country and they have unlimited funds and they use it to try to proselytize this fundamentalist form of Islam across the world. So interestingly, like the Saudi Arabia, they pay for 90% of all new mosques and madrasas built in the entire world. Um, Solely for the sake of proselytizing. Out of this Wahhabi sect, this is where you got 15 of the 19 September 11th hijackers. Um, And the reason why these guys are able to drive um, the Muslim world is because they have so much money, but they also control the holy sites of Islam, which gives them... an Unusual amount of influence. So interestingly nowadays when you look at sort of this Arab Spring going on, it's actually a pretty simple thing. It's the secular fascist um, dictators versus the um, fundamentalists that are basically being propelled by the Wahhabis of Saudi Arabia. Um, And see, and it's sort of a misnomer, the idea of Arab Spring, because it gives... um, It gives off visions of like the Prague Spring if you lived through the Cold War and this idea of like freedoms in liberalism standing up against um, Marxist fascism when in fact it's actually much closer to the the Russian invasion of Afghanistan where you have the Marxist fascists fighting against the Taliban and the Mujahideen warriors um, who are not fighting for liberalism and freedom. And so interestingly, while... um, these dictators are actually very corrupt. They were actually for very much a check on this Islamic fundamentalism which has taken over. Now, last two things, and we will try to be quick, is that, we, like we said, that, that continual theme of them trying to take over Europe, That is interestingly that while this development is going on in the Middle East, they have actually been pretty successful at finally um, trying to reach their goal of taking over Europe. That the current, and partly because the current generations of Europeans has lost their ability morally and philosophically to be able to stand up against creeping Islamization. And so through what they weren't able to accomplish through arms, they've accomplished through simple immigration and demographics. In that the Europeans are literally sterilizing themselves into non-existence while the Muslims are proliferating, since they do believe in large families. And interestingly, you might have already heard this, last year the most common baby-boy name given to babies born in England last year was Muhammad. And it's, that many have estimated that, that a Muslim Europe, of Muslims being the majority in Europe by as early as 2050, though some have people have tried to argue that that's that the Muslim birth rate has started to decline, too, though. Um, But interestingly, Canada is not that far behind. Now, the last slide is that it's interesting that trying to find objective scholarship on Islam and objective critiques of Islam is really hard because the simple fact that it can be kind of hazardous to your health. Um, And one reason of this is that Saudi-backed, oil, money-backed organizations like the Council on American Islamic Relations sues everybody under the sun that tries to to um, show Islam in a not good light and that dares to criticize or question Islam. And then they throw out terms like Islamophobia or say that people are racist, um, which last I checked, Islam isn't a race. Um, and in fact, the largest Muslim country in the world is Indonesia, which isn't even near the Middle East. It's over in it's an Asian islands. And that's why even like there's like scholars, like there's a guy named Robert Spencer who is often portrayed as like a fanatic and a racist when he's actually Middle Eastern. He's a Middle Eastern Christian. Um, who is one of the premier scholars on Islam in the entire world. And he's actually banned from even going to England because of, his, because of his hate speech, because he dares to actually criticize and point out inconsistencies. And you can never forget, for instance, the Dutch filmmaker, if you remember back in, I think it was 2004, Theo van Gogh, who was built, doing a video on Islam and got stabbed to death in the Netherlands for daring by a Muslim. Or remember the Muhammad cartoons, um, or when the Pope dared to say that Islam has historically been violent and they reacted by violent protests. And, and like I said, um, there you go. Um, and that can finally bring us to the end of the 2,000 years. And I'm sorry I did go 10 minutes over an hour.